0: Welcome to Script to Screen's Talks podcast. Script to Screen is a charitable organisation dedicated to developing the craft and culture of storytelling for the screen in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Part of our annual programme, the Talks series, brings the creative community together to hear inspirational speakers delve into their creative process, craft, philosophy, or the broader creative landscape. In this corrido Embracing the Meme, which took place in Auckland in June 2021, we hear from global expert on fans and online communities, Sasha Judd, as she talks to moderator Gemma Gracewood, editor-in-chief at Letterboxd. They use case studies to demonstrate the power of fans and go on to discuss fandom, merchandise, cosplay, conventions and the delightful power of letting your audience help chart your project's course, all the way to a sequel, a franchise, a spin-off and beyond. This Script to Screen talk was inspired by a panel discussion that Sasha Judd participated in at the A to Z of Screen Publicity workshop, held in partnership with the Aotearoa Screen Collective in May 2021. That session is also a Script to Screen podcast.
1: Kia ora koutou, ko Gemma Grace Wood, toku ingoa. Um, i just like to say haere mai kite fare o t- e mihi ana ki tohu e- When we did a version of this talk at our recent wānanga, the A to Z of publicity with Script to Screen, um, we chose a fakatoki for each of our sessions, and the one for the fandom session was... No terero, naku terero, ka ora te manuhiri, which translates um, loosely, as it always does, as we give to satisfy guests, or in this case, we give to satisfy fans. We don't make our art in a vacuum, and we don't uh, release it into the void. If we're doing it right as creators, we have someone, or hopefully many, someone's out the other side. And within that audience, there are the viewers who, um, at some point, cross over from a viewer into the passionate realm of being a fan. And Sasha Judd has been watching and learning and participating in the fan realm for some time, and now speaks about fans on a global scale, COVID notwithstanding, Um, and I'm endlessly impressed by her wisdom on the transformative power of fans worldwide. Uh, And I was thinking, though, ahead of this talk that in Aotearoa, our concept of fandom, it's it's sort of a funny old concept, Um, not so much in sport, where it's perfectly acceptable to fully get behind dudes, and sometimes women, if they're lucky enough to be televised, um, running around with the ball. But um, definitely in the arts, our tall poppiness Uh, about our own high achievers tends to rub up against our constant concern about what the rest of the world thinks of us. So I'm really interested in how we can get better at understanding and harnessing, if it's possible within our culture, the power of fans um, to help change the world, or at least our little corner of it. So what do we as creators need to be thinking about in terms of behind-the-scenes materials um, beyond just basic publicity and marketing? and who we hire to be the voice or voices of our show and social media channels. And um, I'm also sort of endlessly interested in how we have moved so far from waiting by the stage door for an autograph and in how tools like social media and streaming services and binge watching and memes and gifts and Etsy and Redbubble have improved or adversely affected access to stars and creators and funding channels. And finally, I'm really curious about how creators choose to either acknowledge or ignore what the fans of their work are saying, and how both fans and creators can fan the flames of fans. So, whether that's from the outside, that was just our starting thing to just show a whole lot of fans in Wellington. Hey, Bruce, (laughs) it's your crowd. Um, So whether that's from the outside, uh, for example, this is the Kitty and Lou Instagram account full of pictures of proudly homemade birthday cakes made by grown-ups to um, celebrate their children's birthdays, or whether it's um, some of the many crafts commemorating the great 1 p.m. press conference. Uh, There it is. Clicker. There we go. Um, what you're seeing here is some earrings, some Ashley Bloomfield earrings, <laughs> some really cute wooden cutout figures of Jacinda and Ashley. They're all for sale on the internet right now. Um, so those are all fan-made items, or whether it's from the inside, the great early 90s Shortland Street collectible cards. Um, South Pacific Pictures, of course, have long been at the forefront of fan service in New Zealand. Or, as recently as um, episode six of Sweet Tooth, which starts with a Marlon Williams song, and then later in the episode, there's Marlon Williams eating Pop-Tarts. And um, I, just, I just had a sort of supposition that that was fan service, but then I checked in with them today, and they said, yeah, basically, the crew were fans of Marlon. So they wanted him in the cast, and they wanted his song on the soundtrack. So... They are fans as creators, just getting him involved, which in turn satisfies any Marlene Williams fans who happen to be watching Sweet Tooth, which is divine. So let's dive in. Sasha, welcome. Hi. Who are fans?
2: Who are fans? Um, I think it's sort of helpful to just start with acknowledging that the study of fans is a whole academic realm that I'm not a part of, so I'm not proposing to speak for scholars of academic fan studies. But I think we can kind of draw some general um, themes about fandom. And you can loosely categorise fans into two kinds. You can talk about what we call curatorial fans, and you can talk about transformative fans. Curatorial fans are fans who prize knowing the most facts about a subject so a sports fan is a classic example often of a curatorial fan someone who can tell you the starting lineups for the all blacks for the last 20 seasons can tell you who the coaches were or the assistant coaches or who the captain was or at a particular point in time um, they are the star wars fans who have not just seen the movies but read all the books and can tell you which parts of the canon contradict other parts transformative fans are less interested in that. They're interested in telling the stories that fall through the cracks. So a transformative fan watches a show or a movie or reads a book... Um, and they want to tell the story that happens off-screen. So they want to imagine what happened after the episode finished, what happened if the characters were not, in fact, Jedi, but were baristas in a coffee shop, what happens if the lead characters were queer or were people of colour. And transformative fans tend to uh, create fan fiction, fan art, and it's very much about that sort of question of what if. So... Um, To give you some examples, transformative fans are interested in telling the story of Hermione as she's depicted in the books, not the white character from the movies. They're interested in the idea that Harry and Draco might have been obsessed with each other at school for other reasons, or that they might have only figured that out years later after the war. Um, they're interested in what Dana Scully might have been like if she was into 90s grunge. They're not that happy with the all-white character set of The Sims, so they design their own character sets to play that game with. And they know that um, the girls of Riverdale are not really that interested in Archie. So transformative fans are trying to move outside of the canon storytelling.
1: It's so weird I've heard you speak about this in this, you know, in this realm before, but it's never occurred to me to relate it back to the writer's room where similarly the writers know much more about the world of the characters than what ends up getting on screen. Yeah. Because you have to. You have to build an entire world. And so then only
2: tell part of that story. Yeah. yeah. So,
1: so my next question was going to be, which fans do you want
2: <laughs> when you're working
1: in film and TV, do you Both want the curatorial? I, yeah. Do you want the transformative? But actually, the transformative fans are kind of like script writers. Yeah,
2: no. I, I mean, I'm not I'm not here to say that one kind is better than the other. Um, I mean, I've spent my life in transformative fandom, um, but I think those things intersect. I mean, last year during the pandemic, I had a bunch of girlfriends who we would normally, in a normal year, be going to Harry Styles concerts. Um, that's a thing that we do around the world together. And of course we couldn't because there were no concerts and there was no travel. So we needed something to replace that feeling of... Um, getting online, seeing what outfit he was wearing on stage, um, discussing the you know set lineup for the night, watching the blurry periscopes from the concert, and we couldn't come up with a replacement for that, uh, and so we decided to become fans of ice hockey, and none of us knew anything about sports at all. Like I've never followed a sport in my life, and the only two things I knew about ice hockey was that um, it's on the ice <laughs> and it's hockey. <laughs> that uh, you're allowed to fight in an ice hockey game, and that many ice hockey players lack teeth. But I wasn't sure if those facts were connected. And so that's, that's where I began. And now, if you want to, I can tell you all about my favourite team, my favourite players and I have some fan-made merch as well. So, uh, you can become a transformative fan of anything is what I'm saying. Um, curatorial fans would hate that because it's like you have to have grown up becoming, you know, like you have to have known yeah, the a, sport all the way You get through a team assigned at birth basically. Yeah, you don't pick a team based on the narrative romance between two of the key players which is <laughs> how I picked mine. You know, <laughs> but they're not actually romantically involved. It's just, there's a good story. So, the, the world's
1: changed the internet's changed how has the conversation between fans yeah. and
2: creators changed yeah that's a great a great place to start i think i think it's evolved a great deal i think if we go back 10 20 years um showrunners and creators put something out into the world and then um Hope that people would like it. And to the extent that transformative fandom grew up around it, it was very much in the shadows. If you were writing fan fiction about Star Trek, you were doing it in a zine in the 70s and mailing it out to people. Um, if you were writing stories about the X-Files in the 90s, you were doing it on a Usenet mailing list. All of this was sort of slightly in the shadows because there was a real sense that studios and showrunners wouldn't approve of you messing with their creations in this way. And there were a few quite high-profile examples of people reacting very poorly to to this sort of activity. So the classic example was Anne Rice, who wrote the Interview with the Vampire novels, and she, like, sued fans. She didn't want anyone doing anything with her characters. It was the whole time. So um, all of this sort of happened. It was slightly taboo, happened slightly in secret, and I think that relationship has evolved as social media has evolved, as a lot of this stuff has sort of become much more public. And I think now we're getting into a situation where studios and creators are fully aware that this is going on, and they want to embrace it. I mean, a, a, you know, a recent example in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, here's Brie Larson and Tessa Thompson tweeting each other about great examples of fan art of the their two characters from the MCU. Um, in a completely (laughs) non-canon relationship with one another. Um, And that's the sort of thing that would have been unheard of, I guess, even five years ago. So I think there's a a much greater recognition that this activity is happening, that it's something that um, is beneficial because people are talking about your property, they're sharing it, they're excited about it, they're part of a community that loves it. And so sort of bringing that into the fold and and making it part of that creative process.
1: This might seem a naive question from someone who deeply understands PR and marketing, but would Brie Larson and Tessa Thompson have been in a boardroom with the marketing department of Marvel saying, so the fan art art is going to start rolling, here's how to respond?
2: I have no idea. (laughs) I I mean, I genuinely don't know. I mean, Marvel is legendary for the degree of control they exert over, um, you know, the actors even knowing what movies they're in, you know, yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I can't answer that question. Uh, I imagine they needed quite a lot of permission for this to happen in the world, but I think that that's quite a change.
1: It's pretty amazing. I like to think that they have agency over their own Twitter accounts, but, I'm, yeah, I'm also cynical, so, yeah. Um, I am interested in, from a, I guess, a creative perspective, and, so from a Speaking as a producer and speaking as someone who's worked in publicity, there are certain materials you need to collect as part of your contract with your platform, right, um, for the release of the show or the film or whatever. And then, and then there's more that's kind of nice to have. Uh, and then there's more that fans might want. So it'd be quite good to talk for a while about the how to how to prepare for a fandom that you don't know you're going to get. Yeah. And you know what we need and what the sort of recommendations and rules are like what do what do fans love and what they, why do they love behind the scenes stuff so much i know that seems like a really basic question but
2: yeah i mean i think it's an interesting question um, i think lord of the rings is a great example like it was sort of one of the first properties that really went deep in the behind the scenes stuff which um you know it sounds very dated now it was DVD extras <laughs> like oh my god But the access that that gave to fans, um, both to the creative process and to the actors themselves, is, you know, hugely responsible for the strength of that fandom um, and how people felt about it and how they felt about the actors because they felt that they'd had this insider access. And so much of fandom is about feeling like you're part of a community, that it's an in-group, out-group thing. It's like you care about this, this thing deeply and feeling like you're you're inside the tent um, is an amazing feeling. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, behind the scenes, content is obviously incredible. When you're first making something, you don't necessarily, like, if you start tweeting, hey, here's behind the scenes of my new movie, it's not like anyone's necessarily going to care. <laughs> but but thinking ahead to, you know, if, if your dream is that this is something that's going to live on in the world, um, I guess recording that, making sure that you have those assets and resources so that you're in a position to share them later is enormously important.
1: And enormously, I mean, expensive. It adds to the production budget and it adds to the schedule and...
2: I mean, it can do. I mean, it depends. Like, if it's if it's your actors who are filming stuff on their iPhones, then maybe not, right? Like, so it sort of depends how it's done. Obviously, the Lord of the Rings stuff was big budget and high-end and thought about and cut together and beautifully distributed, but... It, it might not necessarily be that way. It might be that it's just a bunch of Instagram Lives that fans are into and, and keeping.
1: I did, some, um, I did some Hobbit behind the scenes producing in New York one time. Went to Howard Shaw's very amazing place where, not his house, I thought it was his house, as we drove up to it, because it was kind of this mansion in a, in a private gated lakeside village. But um, it was just the place he writes his music. It was amazing Um, and it was highly yeah highly produced and a lot of money went into it but but the bottom line is and, and and i'm pretty sure everyone in the room will feel this as well is that once the camera starts rolling you can be as produced as you want you can have money up the wazoo you can have the whole storyboard of the behind the scenes thing laid out but once the camera starts rolling it's actually about what what that person wants to do in that moment and someone like howard Shaw, he's been around the block a whole bunch of times and He'll just say what he wants to say. And he 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 was just so generous. It was like a gift. He's like, Come and look at this, come and look at this, come and look. And we hadn't discussed any of that. Can we look in your books with your beautiful musical notation in pencil? He was just open to it. And it was, yeah. So there's a moment where you mark, you know, in marketing speak, you can cynically set up everything you want and throw all the money at it, but But at the heart of it, there's an artist going, oh, you're here to see how it is I do what I do. That's cool. Here it is. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And I think the thing that we took out of the the last time we talked about this was um, you can't assume that someone else is taking responsibility for preparing those assets or resources. So, um, you know, I think we all kind of have this idea in our head that there's some mystery marketing department somewhere who's going to take this over at some point and have all these things ready to go, and that's not necessarily the case. So... Um, I guess being mindful while the thing is being made, what would be called cool to preserve? Like, what, what are some things that, that might be of interest? Sort of being a forward archaeologist sort of thinking, you know, what should we keep for later?
1: Yeah, and being quite um, flexible and iterative about that as well. Um, when when we did this session at our wānanga, we also had Paul Yates, who's the um, showrunner of Wellington Paranormal, and he was talking about how they had they had employed a local Wellington agency to do the behind the scenes for the first two seasons and it was it was pretty straightforward. It was uh, one film crew filming another film crew filming what they were doing um, for the DVD extras. and But it wasn't sort of as time went on in keeping with the spirit of what Wellington Paranormal itself is. When season three rolled around and they brought Tom Sainsbury onto the cast and he wasn't a, uh, on in every, every scene so he had availability, Paul had a bit of a brainwave and went, oh, this, this is going to change our behind the scenes. And so he basically employed Tom through some more money at him to host the behind the scenes and to kind of womble around and ask questions of the cast and crew. And it made it a thousand times funnier and a thousand times more interesting because you've got a not only a pair of eyes that you're experiencing it through, but a pair of eyes that's inside that production and is a funny person. So it's also about sort of looking at Looking at literally what you have in front of you that you can use, I think. Um, and another really lovely example that came out that day was um, about Alibi. Who here worked on Alibi? Anyone? Um, so it was the Choose Your Own Adventure mystery series that was on TV and set on demand a couple of years ago. And um, because it was on demand, not on broadcast, they really didn't have much of a um, publicity and marketing budget, uh, and they knew that the release of the series was going to be quite low-key. They're like, what can we do? And they basically put all of their available money into the best possible publicity shoot they could do with their characters and produced these images. They're incredible, right? And, um, you can still see them today on TVNZ On Demand, and it just, that did the trick. If you have little to no money, just throw it all at the best possible photo shoot you can do. Because that, that right there. Literally the, the only trick. reason
2: I know that series exists is because these photos are so striking when it pops up in the TVNZ On Demand carousel. Like, kind of like what's that show? <laughs> you know, like the, just that photography set is amazing.
1: It's all about the carousel. And it is for a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. All about that carousel. Oh, by the way, I'm totally up for um, anyone putting their hand up or going ding, ding, if you don't know what we're talking about. Good question. I don't, but it looks like Patty Solomon at Tyrell's work. Yeah. It's gorgeous, isn't it? And this is definitely someone who knows how to light for a range of skin colours, which is um, incredibly important and increasingly incredibly important for New Zealand casts. You'd be surprised how few people think about that before, yeah, when they're booking their photographer. So um, I guess a creator question to ask at the outset, really, at the outset of a project is, how much of this project do you want to share? And who on your cast is going to be happy and available to do more, I guess, beyond principal photography and, and your basic publicity rollout? Would that
2: yeah. be fair questions? Yeah, and it might depend. I mean, if, you, if you're a brand new show or film or whatever with a cast of unknowns, suddenly having your actor tweeting about their new project is not necessarily going to do anything in particular. But if you have someone who has some social reach, that might be important. Fans who are coming to the project because of someone who's involved – they're predisposed to love it, right? Like they wanna know everything that the person they stand is involved with, and so they're gonna be watching closely. Um, currently, Venice is being overrun by Harry Styles fans who are trying to catch a glimpse of him filming My Policeman on the canals, which I don't think Venice is enjoying. But you know, like that's that, those sorts of things translate, right? Um, performers bring audiences with them, uh, and so that can certainly be something that you take into account. Uh, So, yeah, I think it it varies wildly between an unknown pilot and uh, an established show where you're trying to sort of keep that flywheel moving.
1: But the Bodmelanas don't not do anything. Yeah, definitely don't do nothing.
2: Yeah, definitely don't do nothing. (laughs)
1: Good lesson. So um, if we jump forward, so we're just going to kind of pile through this, but do feel free to ask questions as we go, and there will be question time at the end. We jump forward to release. I'm quite interested to talk about how fans come into play when it's time to send your work out in the, into the world and, and, and what the difference is between um, some, you know, straightforward publicity and marketing, you know, a tweet saying, here's the trailer, and what fan engagement looks like.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I think that's interesting because I think, I mean, I'm someone who is firmly in that cable cut demographic that doesn't see anything that's not coming across my social media, basically. Like, I'm not picking up a copy of the TV guide. I'm not reading the newspaper. Um, And I was really struck by that. You and I had lunch a couple of months ago and I was staying in a hotel and I had watched The Tender Trap only because I was in a hotel with linear television and I turned it on and there it was. (laughs) And and like, I, I didn't, have any awareness that that had been made, that it was screening, that, you know, I really enjoyed it, but, you know. So um, thinking about that sort of release publicity, I think, is interesting, and it's going to vary depending on the demographics and and how that rolls out. But then it's sort of about how do you engage with your fans while that's happening? Like, how do you kind of experience um, the release with them? And Some of this is going to be budget-dependent. It's obviously much easier for shows with big budgets who can pay someone to be looking at social media while the show airs. But it is something that contributes to that kind of community feel. So this is an example where I was watching Queer Eye, and uh, there was an incredible reaction from the Fab Five to something. And so I just tweeted, saying I urgently needed a GIF of this reaction because I felt that it would be useful in my life. Uh, and Queer replied immediately saying we got you and gave me three gifts that I could use um, for that which was ideal they have been extremely useful gifts Uh, and it's it's one of those things where gif making is so straightforward. and basically free. Anyone can make a gif, and Giphy is an absolute godsend. You can get a branded it's a gift.
1: Giphy is a gift.
2: Giphy is a gift. Yeah. You can get a branded channel on Giphy. You can you know have your whole gift set ready to go in advance, and um, and and people want them. They want to use them, um, and I think probably the best example of that is the Schitt's Creek GIF set, which just has such a recognisable iconography, you know, like it's been beautifully designed. But you see those gifts everywhere.
1: Yeah. You know, and I actually want to ask, who in this room has made a GIF? Because they couldn't find, yeah, 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 yeah.
2: And it's not that hard. It's not that hard. You know, hard. like I'm, I'm not particularly technical. It's I, I can manage it. <laughs> I made it
1: back to Jane Campion. I made. I was grumpy that I couldn't find any gifts from *In the Cut*, her famously maligned but fucking brilliant um, erotic uh, detective murder drama. And um, every time I was looking for Mark Ruffalo in the cut gifts, I just kept getting the Hulk. And so I made some *In the Cut* gifts where he's just super hot in the bar, <laughs> making Perfect. eyes at Mick yeah, See,
2: that's your gift to the world. Yeah. So um yeah people, so, so yeah. social media engagement like this where um you know that the show is airing the film is screening um and just just watching that conversation unfold and participating in that conversation and um you know that might feel daunting um but but the buzz that people get from a response from the show or the creator or whatever is
1: Amazing. It's massive. So when you're looking for, when you're considering your release and you're looking for someone who's going to be running your social channels, you want someone who understands gifts and memes and stickers and also the show itself and also the person they're tweeting back at or Instagramming back
2: at. Yeah, it has to feel authentic. Um, I I think that's right. You don't don't want to pay someone to do it who's just churning it out.
1: You also want someone who's a fan of the show, presumably, Yeah. because then they're talking to other fans. And I think a really lovely and extremely recent local example of this. And these next images are all gifts, but I'm not as good as Sasha at, at embedding gifts into keynotes. So uh, just imagine they're moving. But um, hosting Creamery. Yes. So um, Creamery did exactly the right thing. They got a, a social media person on to run their socials during the rollout of the series. So on the night it opened on TVNZ, it went straight on to demand and you could binge the whole thing, but you could also watch it weekly. So what they did was they had, um, they had a team of, uh, from within the production crew and also famous friends, so Officer O'Leary from Wellington Paranormal, for example, um, they got them each to do a different Monday night while it was rolling out and do live tweeting and live Instagram lives. Um and then during the week they had the other regular social media person just keeping an eye on mentions and replying to people. So this is some, two examples of the of the latter, which is so here's Caitlin Cherry, Jesse Mulligan's executive producer, finally watched it. It's so good. And there's Perlina saying, That's true. <laughs> and then I love this one. SBS on demand, once it opened in Australia doing a pretty awesome tweet about it, and then they have a gif of um, lovely Ryan coming out of the shower going, well, come on. And it's just it's just brilliant. But then, when they had the live, uh, the Instagram and live tweet alongs, James Roquet did one night, and he coined the term creamheads, <laughs> just as his first opening salvo. He was like, okay, creamheads, episode starting. And they went, that's it, we've got our hashtag. And so now, because you want that as well. You want a beehive situation going on with your show. But um, it was authentic, you know. It was just roquet going, cream heads. So it's <laughs> not some marketing genius sitting down going, what's our hashtag gonna be for the creamery? That's beautiful. Love it. Um, is that the last one? Yeah, it is. Cool. So then what happens once it's out in the world, and then the fans take your thing? And you lose control of it. And you lose control. (laughs) And you've got your merch and you've got your stuff going on, but your fans have got other ideas.
2: Well, maybe you've got your merch. I mean, we haven't quite talked about merch yet. We should talk about merch. Yeah.
1: Because I still want my Wellington Paranormal Indoor Netball Team, you know, T-shirt, and they still haven't come up with it. And what I find quite interesting, and again, it comes back to budget, is that often what happens, especially in New Zealand, is you get your crew gear at the end of the shoot, which has the logo or the cute slogan that came out while you're on set, but you don't get merch for the fans unless you are a behemoth like South Pacific Pictures and you can issue details of Shortland Street's first lesbian wedding, which is great, or, you know, Chris and Rachel coffee cups, of which I have both and am immeasurably proud, but um, it's, you know, it's few and far between because it's a budgetary issue, right? But yeah. is it a budget I mean, issue? Well, yeah.
2: it is a budgetary issue, but I also sort of feel like in this age of the internet and print-on-demand, it shouldn't really be a budgetary issue. You know, like you, you no longer have to pre-order a thousand t-shirts to excel. that. Well, it is possible now for you to decide that you would like a Jane Campion t-shirt and to upload that design to a print-on-demand website and make it available for sale, and they'll just print one and send it to the person who's bought it. So you don't have to have the commercial outlay of pre-ordering from the person who will print it 1,000 of these T-shirts. So I do think the economics of it have changed a little bit. Have you Um, bought merch? (laughs) I have bought a lot of merch. Have you brought I have brought some merch, yeah. Only because I wanted to illustrate that point about um, feeling like an insider. Like I think the best merch is the merch that sends the signal that you're part of a community. I don't want to wear a T-shirt that has the Friends TV logo on it, right? Like, why would I want to? But for people who are into that property, it's suddenly like, ah, it gotcha. Like, like it's, a, it's an insider signal, which I think the best merch often is. Um, this is an example of, you can see I've got a big hoodie collection. Um, I'll just do that again. This is... Um, from the Avengers Avengers film. In the last Avengers film, they go on a time heist and they wear these quantum suits. There's a quantum suit hoodie. Um, and I was wearing that at New York Comic Con and Seth Green went, is that a time heist hoodie? And I went, oh my God, you're Seth Green. Um, so yeah, that sort of insider signal, like that you've, you've clocked that somebody cares about the same thing that you do. And so I think merch is not about slapping your logo on something. It's about the Wellington Paranormal Indoor Netball team, you know? That's the, that's the vibe you want to go for.
1: Because I don't
2: want to wear a police
1: hat, actually. Just, <laughs> I don't know if anyone does. Okay, so, so there are things we can do, merch-wise, which is beyond the logo. But then there are the things that the fans do, merch-wise. And I'm so interested in how we've gone, you know, through and beyond a world where everybody gets sued for trying yeah. to do anything with with any logo, any TV series ever, to Redbubble. Let's just pretend Redbubble doesn't exist. Do you know, everyone know what Redbubble is? Yeah, it's a place where you can buy T-shirts that are made by people. That t-shirts of,
2: and, and, and laptop cases and, 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 and mouth pads drink bottles.
1: And <laughs> yeah. calendars and yeah. pretty much, yeah, you can slap anything on anything. And a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of fan-made design.
2: Yeah. That, that has been a real evolution and I think it reflects the fact that 10 or 15 years ago if you were doing anything that was creative in the fan space you were putting a disclaimer all over it saying I'm not making money off of this. This is just my interpretation. This is just for fun. Please don't sue me. Like That was how the whole fan world operated. Um, and I think that the evolution of the internet and the ability to do things like print-on-demand has really shifted that. Um, and the rise of The ability to do micropayments through things like Patreon and so on, which enables people who have spent a lot of time creating the kind of fan art that that I was showing before to say, hey, if you love this, support me financially, right? And there's a fascinating discussion, which I'm not going to get into now, about the distinction between writing and art because artists charge and there's no acceptance that writers will. So fan fiction is still a completely unpaid labour, even though people are writing, you know, 200,000-word novels. Um, But, yeah, but on the art side, there is now a a sort of, there's a culture around commissioning fan artists to do something that you love. Um, I paid a fan artist the other day 20 bucks to send me the high-res digital file of a piece that she'd done because I wanted it on a T-shirt. So that kind of, there's, there's an economy built up around that. And I think for studios and creators and showrunners, it's a bit of a challenge because um, it's your intellectual property, um, you know, or or it's the studios, however that works. (laughs) Um, And so there's there's a sense that you don't want other people profiting off the thing that you have made. And yet also you want, you want it out in the world. You want people to, um, to love it and to share it and to have that word of mouth. And so from my perspective, I think the idea of fans making a few T-shirts and, uh, you know, maybe making a few bucks off that is, is sort of nothing compared to the benefit that you get from people loving the thing that you have made that much. Um, well, it
1: right, always struck me as really weird to see people walking around wearing like a Nike or a New Balance T-shirt that they have paid for to advertise Nike A brand. in New Balance. Yeah, to advertise brand. So I
2: don't know. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, creators deal with it in different ways. I, mean, one, I think one really good example um, recently was Rainbow Rowell, who's an author who's written... Um, a series of books about a magical school, which is not Harry Potter for complicated reasons, which I'll tell you over a drink. Uh, but anyway, her fans have for many years been making their own merch about the Watford Academy, which is the school that these kids go to. Um, and she had no problem with that. And then she commissioned a designer to do the official Watford Academy um, school logo and sports T-shirt and whatever. And when she released it, she said to her fans... These are the official designs. I'm totally happy with you continuing to make your own stuff. Just don't rip this off. So if you want these official ones, buy them from my site. I get paid. The artist gets paid. It's all, you know, that's a win-win-win. If you want to make your own stuff, also fine. Don't do this. Just don't do this. And that was actually quite well received by her community. And I think that that's an interesting kind of balancing exercise. Um, But yeah, I mean... As you will know, the big studios sort of walk a line with this. It's like, um, my brother made these incredible Star Wars pins, and like there are they are sort of a cartoon version of the Star Wars characters, and he's like, "Do you think I'm gonna get sued?" And I was like, "No, because I don't think George Lucas is coming after someone who's selling a few pins on Etsy. Um, and And, you know, up to a point, I think the studios are fine with it. If you're actually ripping off their trademarked logos and you know, trying to make money from that, then it might be a different story. And then there are the studios that are so savvy
1: that they completely embrace what's going on and kind of bring it into the fold. And the example I wanted to share was A24, the the studio that, yep, lots of nodding. So you all know, right? So A24, um, there are many articles about how their publicity and marketing works. There are no quotes from A24 people in those articles. They've built a a total air of mystery around what it is they do, which is a lot of, um, I guess, uh, grassroots-earned kind of PR and marketing that other people have done for them. And then they kind of go, oh, that's really good, and bring it into the fold. Uh, To the point where they've kind of built up a fandom for their studio, not just for the films they make. But for their studio there's a private A24 Facebook group which is closing in on 70,000 members who just get on there to talk about A24 movies. And there's an assumption that even though no one A24 film is like another A24 film, all A24 lovers will love all A24 films. So they've sort of built up a fandom, essentially an audience around the studio and not just the movies. And then they do things like uh, when Lady Bird came along to film, um, some chap thought that it would be brilliant to rip off Taylor Swift's Reputation album cover and make a Ladybird version, basically along the lines of, look what you made me do, uh, which is so great. Put it up on Redbubble for sale, and then A24 in capital letters tweeted, cease and desist. But they no, had no intention of getting him to cease and desist. It's just a joke, right? So that's February the 10th. And then at some point, they tracked him down and on their own blog wrote this beautiful, by the end of the month, this gorgeous long feature about this 16-year-old Brazilian teenager behind the T-shirt. And the story is all about how you know he started off as, a, as, a, as an illegal um, dude ripping off our merch, and now he's our best friend. And that's how you do it. I just love that. I love it so much. My other favourite Redbubble piece of merch is this sticker (laughs) from Hunt for the Wilder People, which you can also get put (laughs) on a coffee cup if you want. But that is not official Hunt for the Wilder People merch right there, people. That is just some fan of Paula, the child welfare officer. (laughs) I love it. And then and then it sort of gets a bit crazy, right? Then it gets into what people are wearing in costumes and and what what members of the cast and crew choose to give away as part of the whole process. Yeah, and
2: I think that's sort of about having a healthy relationship with your IP. And I, I say this as a recovering lawyer, um, and I know that for those of you who are creators, there'll be people involved in your teams on legal who are saying, don't do this, <laughs> you know, like this is our intellectual property, you can't give this away, you can't let these things happen. Um, And the lawyers will often be wrong. And so sort of trying to find a way to balance that tension and to push back I think is really interesting. This was just an example that I wanted to share. Um, Harry Styles performed, uh, this was just his warm-up, actually. He didn't even perform wearing this. wearing this cardigan, um, which is by a knitwear designer called J.W. Anderson, And his fans were so excited by this cardigan, and it was a pandemic, so everyone was knitting, I guess, that people started to knit it on TikTok and share their knitting videos of trying to recreate this cardigan. And the the fashion designer behind it, JW Anderson, was so impressed and humbled by this trend that he released the official pattern. And so, like, this is a classic example. This guy's a big-name designer. This was his intellectual property. He certainly did not need to make it available for fans who had been faithfully trying to recreate it in their bedrooms. Um, but he did, and I just thought, what an amazing way to treat your intellectual property, right? Like, I mean, these were not young women who would have been buying a JW Anderson cardigan and, um, instead of trying to stop them from doing this just celebrating it, and uh, the outcome of that was that v bought the cardigan because it's now become a cultural artefact, which uh, probably wouldn't have happened otherwise. So, yeah, I think just sort of, I, I understand the instinct to say, this is my thing that I've made and other people ought not to profit off it, but I think taking a, a much broader view of that and sort of saying, ultimately, I want people to love what we've made and I want them to build community around it and be excited about it and share it with other people. Um, And I think sort of finding a way to do that is really important.
1: And just in case Harry Styles is a little too aspirational for a local production. (laughs) Anyone remember Auntie Bella's cat sweater? Here's the pattern as shared with the great knitting pattern website Ravelry by Kristen Seth, the film's costume designer. And um, we don't have the v but we do have Te Papa. <laughs> and this is the Auntie Bella sweater being collected for Te Papa's collection. So it can happen to you. <laughs> I just wanted to say that. Um, but it also can happen to you in terms of, um, you know, where your fan art can end up, right? So when you bring yeah. it back into the fold.
2: And I, I think increasingly, um, studios are starting to sort of say, well, this is out there, how can we make use of it? Um, and so a couple of years ago, Hulu did a campaign for The Handmaid's Tale in which they had fan artists create fan art with a hashtag, hashtag My Handmaid's tale. And um, so fan artists who would otherwise have been making this stuff and just sharing it for themselves... Um, made art, and if they hashtagged it, it was part of this campaign. And it's the first time I've ever seen commercial ads on Tumblr actually being reblogged as if they were posts because they looked like this. They looked like fan art, like part of, or they were fan art, but, you know, like were part of the community and were being shared in that way, even though they were a commercial advertisement. Um, and there's, some, there's something really striking about that, I think. Um, I think the, the question, of course, is, I mean, these artists aren't being paid so um there's there's sort of a discussion to be had there. And exposure. Yeah, they were being paid in exposure. It's you can true. pay
1: your rent with exposure, <laughs> Sasha, surely. <laughs>
2: Um, you know, so there's a, there's a little bit of a tension there. It's like, OK, well, a studio got a bunch of extremely cool art to um, promote their show with and not pay anyone for it. Uh, but I also think there's something to the recognition of what fan artists are making and, um, and you know, the, the wider reach that comes with it.
1: I want to shift and ask creatively for the writers and showrunners in the room... Um, quite a controversial question. Fan service inside the art itself, is it a good idea? Like, Easter eggs, uh, looking at what fans are saying about characters and then going that way with the storyline?
2: Yeah. I, I am troubled by the way in which fan service has become a pejorative phrase. It's sort of like, oh, that's just fan service. And it's like, well... I think there's something to be said for um a love letter to your fans, you know like i don't I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. it doesn't dismiss the creative endeavor so you know a few years back before the series was rebooted, um fans of Veronica Mars funded a Kickstarter to get a movie made after the show had been cancelled um and when Robel made that movie, the critics sort of panned it as being fan service um. But in some ways that made sense to me. It's like they raised the money from the fans to make the film and then they made a film that they knew the fans would love. And I don't I don't necessarily see that there's anything wrong a with that. It's slightly
1: closer to home version of this. Right. Which was not where this was going to come. It looks like it was pre-planned, but this was for another section. But this is um, Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. Uh, went to four seasons and then the ABC decided that was it and the fans decided that wasn't it. Uh, and so the, um, the creators went, all right, well, if we can raise $250,000, we'll make a little movie just to round the story off. And they put the Kickstarter up on Friday, and by Sunday they had $250,000. So they did a stretch goal and went, we'll add in a couple more characters and go to another location if we can get to this much. Anyway, they tripled their goal. They got, you know, three quarters of a million dollars. And, and again, same thing, if you look at the, you know, the ratings for the movie – it's not great. But the fans.
2: The fans loved it.
1: And the fans paid
2: for it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, getting into that kind of economic bargain, who are you making it for? Who are you responding to? That's kind of tough. Um, and it's it's something that I've noticed a lot with authors rather than creating for the screen, where you'll see authors on social media saying, do not tweet me with your fan theories about what's going to happen in this series or what you want to see in the sequel because if you tweet it to me and I see it, then I'm in trouble legally. And so their fear is that you've tweeted them your amazing idea about how the two characters will solve the mystery in book four, and then the author, unrelatedly, writes the book, and then you sue them for plagiarism and say, I said that idea all along. So I've sort of seen that tension play out where authors are like, just don't, just don't share it with me. It's fine if you're doing your thing. Write your fan fiction, do whatever you want. I can't see it because I still have to be a creator separate from what it is that you hope might happen.
1: So on an intellectual property level, there's separation.
2: Yeah. And then when it comes to screen and television, I think there's a really interesting tension going on right now. So, I mean, you look at something like the Snyder Cut and whatever else you say about whether Zack Snyder should have made that film or not, um, the reality is that the Snyder Cut came about because of... Every ugly mob of online fans who felt entitled to demand that <laughs> and, and a studio who saw the money opportunity in that and then Zack Snyder got $70 million to make a four-hour movie. So I, I don't know where the winners are in that, in that situation.
1: So... Um, Did anyone here feel like a winner with their four-hour Justice League?
2: Yeah. <laughs> So I, I guess I guess what I would say is I think it's important to understand the conversation that's happening online, not necessarily to have the tail wagged by it. Is that the right use that metaphor? I'm not sure now. Um, I, th- I think you need to know what's happening. I think you need to understand where your fans are at with the show or the film, and understand what they care about and what they're stoked about and what they're upset by not with a view to responding to that in real time or trying to appease them, because I think that's the wrong way to go about it. But I think without understanding that, you can make some pretty amateur mistakes. Um, A a classic example in recent years was a YA TV show in the US called The 100. And it had a really passionate, engaged fan base. uh, And one of the the relationships that the fans were, were super invested in was a queer relationship, which was not canon. It wasn't wasn't on screen. Um, it, but, but it had a very, very engaged following. And You mean
1: not canon, not on screen, as in it was in fan fiction?
2: It was in, yeah. F- fans believed that these two women should be a couple, but that had not been part of the story to date. Um, and two things happened in reasonably quick succession. They shared behind-the-scenes content Um, of the filming of the season finale, uh, which had one of these two characters in the the behind-the-scenes stuff. So fans immediately took from that that she would make it to the final because she had been filming the finale. Therefore, she would not die in the ensuing 10 episodes. Mm -hmm. And and then, of course, they had the episode where these two characters did get together and then immediately that character was killed. So it was sort of a double whammy because it was a real kind of bury your gays trope of finally this queer ship has become canon and then immediately one of them is killed. So there's sort of no, no satisfaction or fulfilment from that. Uh, and also the bait and switch of believing that that character wasn't gonna die because they had seen behind the scenes content that um, suggested that she wouldn't. So, it, uh, and the backlash from, from that fandom was venomous. Um, and I, I think that's… But also, they do that.
1: The mar- they do that. The marketing people, of which I have been one. I mean, it happens here, with Shorten Street, where if they're building up to a mid-season or an end of year cliff, and if a popular character is going to die, keep a close eye on the Instagram stories because that character will appear more. There will be more photos. There will be more behind the scenes interviews with the actor there will be more scene clips with that character to build the connection that we have with them, to build the following, to build the emotional, you know,
2: And so, you know, this, I have no idea. I have no inside information to the 100. I have no idea if this was deliberate or not. May well have been. Um, But, wow, what a backlash. And so, so I guess the question is sort of, if you're... If you're not aware of the conversations that are going on online, then you're not even in a position to decide whether to manipulate your fan base emotionally or not. Um, And you're more likely, I guess, to trip over some things which are going to make people super unhappy. You may not care because, Mm. as you say, you may get the engagement either way and and you're like, well, fine, we had a a reaction even if it was negative and that's...
1: But if you were figuring out how to strike a balance as a creative between ring-fencing your own you know, what production and engaging with fans. It's kind of when you're in when you're in writing mode, keep it closed. When you're in release mode.
2: Yeah, I well, I don't know. I don't know that there's a right answer to that question. Um I I think I, I think the answer is you want to create the show that you're making. You don't necessarily want to make it in response to the fans. Though, so, you know, when we spoke about this last time, someone was saying the example of of building in um, or elevating characters who maybe had been sidelined, but fans love them, so you give them bigger and bigger parts. So there's definitely a sort of a back and forth between fans and creators. Um, Speaking of Shortland
1: Street, that is something that's happened over time. Yeah. Demo, remember when Demo was just the weird IT guy? who popped up, like, three times a year and now he's a central core cast character. <laughs> that has happened several times on that show. Yeah. Yeah,
2: um, yeah. and I, I think all I'm saying is you need to be aware of the conversation that's going on online. Like, understand who it is that your fans care about and, and who they don't or what they, what they passionately want to see happen. You might decide to go in a completely different direction, but if you don't even know that that's the conversation that's happening, then I think you're on the back foot.
1: I think... Um, uh, before we get to our sort of wrap-up and maybe some questions, it'll be quite good to talk about the, once you've got your fans, what else can they do? Not just for you, but also for the world. Because <laughs> <laughs> you've got these people, right? And they've, they've, you've corralled them around your piece of art, but now you have email addresses, Instagram accounts, you know, WhatsApp groups, Facebook groups, full of people with resources and excitement for what you're doing. What can we get them to do? Like, uh, and I specifically want to ask about um, the K-pop band BTS <laughs> raising a million dollars for Black Lives Matter in June last year.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you start that by saying what could we as creators do to mobilise the power of fans? I think all the examples we've seen so far have been fans mobilising themselves. Um,
1: which is so important to remember as creators, yeah. Right? it's Yeah,
2: yeah that, and and I think that just comes back to where we started, which is that fans are a community of people who have united around something that they really like and... Um, there's power in community and people will then choose to to use that in different ways um, and so we've seen a bunch of examples over the years of motivated groups of fans um, Harry Potter fans got together to um, campaign for uh, Warner Brothers branded chocolate products that are sold through all the Harry Potter theme parks and stores and so on, They um, it wasn't fair trade, and so they worked out that the chocolate products that are sold in all the stores were basically being made by child slaves, which was kind of not in keeping with the whole vibe of books about, you know, children fighting their way free of oppression. So, um, but that was an example of, like, it was a really coordinated multi-year campaign by hundreds of thousands of fans, writing letters and, you know, getting stories on the news media and whatever to get that changed, and... They did. Um, We've we've seen political action, and I think K-pop is a great example of that because their K-pop fan bases are very online and very motivated, um, very swarm-like. And so we've seen a a few examples of that recently Um, during the Black Lives Matter protests in the the US last year. um, A number of US-based police forces put up uh, snitch sites, basically, where you could upload footage of your local protest so that the police could um, find Antifa (laughs) and arrest them, uh, which was sort of a terrible idea. But anyway, K-pop. Stands just flooded those um, snitch sites with their fan cams of their favorite performers until all of the sites crashed through the upload of these videos. Uh, and you know, it's lovely to watch those sort of very simple things work, like when all the TikTok teens signed up for the tickets to, David, uh, to Donald Trump's rallies and he thought he'd sold them out and he hadn't. Um, and, and I, you know, the BTS uh, fans army raised um, an enormous amount of money for Black Lives Matter. I think the, the one thing that I would just say immediately as a note of caution is that fans are both awesome and terrible. Um, and, and I think we have to hold both of those things uh, in tension at all times. And, you know, the K-pop fandoms have a, a real issue with racism um, that they have to sort of constantly reckon with. And that's in part because K-pop... Um, is quite appropriative of black music and black culture, but you are very quickly run out of K-pop fandom for um, making that critique. And so there's been quite a lot of good writing, if you want to dig into any of that, around how K-pop fandom is sort of reckoning with its anti-black racism. So on the one hand, amazing. On the other hand, often terrible. Uh, And so you sort of have to balance those things at all times.
1: But if we do look at the, um, and it feels like a bit gross to just gloss over that and move on, but if we do look at the um, sort of next-level stories of fan power and the ways in which you can raise a quarter of a million dollars for the movie or a a million dollars in 24 hours, um, you can also use your stars for social good and public good projects. And I really love this one. It's just a little... Outtake of how to
2: make a place? Just click like, it again. Oh, there what go. Um, my Well, I didn't really like, so I used the doggy cook bags, and I didn't have a mask of any sort, and so I
1: modified
0: one of my old bride, and I'm bursting from <laughs> the, the workshop. Okay, Mum, you're in your bubble, so and uh, also none of this stuff's actually effective, so you can take all of that stuff off. Oh, I can take it off. Yeah, take off. Ah, what and i nice i just get my off now. Anyway, I'm just
1: taking that off you know, I'm going to turn away, <laughs> Oh, It's Linda Top. I love that. I just love the reveal of that. Not only is this beautiful public service message, which was a series of COVID-19 public service messages made by the Wellington Paranormal team, not only is it is it sort of in service of Wellington Paranormal fans, but also it's Linda Top, Dame <laughs> Linda Top, which is just such a gorgeous reveal, and it's, it's really indicative of how that production team completely understands the, the, the world in which they're working and, and how that will just make people gleeful and happy. Um, I, I also wanted to just share a story of my own about how fans will move with you from project to project once you've corralled them, you know, keep them, and keep them moving. If they associate you and your production company with content they enjoy, no matter what it is, they'll 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 move with you. And it feels like an easy hit in this country, but it's the obvious one, and it's the obvious one for a reason. The Taika, Brett, and Germain effect can't be underestimated in terms of the way that they have um, created a number of projects, some of them offshoots of each other, and moved their fandoms between them. and when you read interviews with those guys, they will always undersell they will always undersell themselves and they 'll understand uh, undersell the degree to which they sort of care about fans but it 's been really evident um, to the those of us watching them closely for a long time and uh, that fans are actually they're kind of number one first and foremost that they most deeply care about and I have a, a personal professional experience of this um, from way back when. 2006, when I travelled to South by Southwest in Texas with them to make a documentary for TV3, before they had even shot the pilot of the HBO series. But they were on their way there, and they'd been invited to the comedy, not the music, but the comedy part of South by Southwest. And um, they weren't terribly well-known, but they had done their HBO special. And some fans of theirs, who'd become fans from seeing the HBO special, had driven 30 hours like overnight, day and night, to get to Austin to catch a glimpse of them. And the thing about South by Southwest is you spend $800 on a pass to get into the official events. And if you can't get into the official events, then you just keep your ear to the ground and find out where your favourite artist might be playing otherwise. And on this particular day, uh, Brett and Jermaine were playing on a box, <laughs> in a tent, out the back of an outsider art gallery, off-site. And um, during that gig, Neil Young and his then-wife Came to watch Flood of the Concord specifically. Not anyone else who was on that lineup, but them. They were standing at the back, leaning against the wall, and as soon as I clocked him, I was like, oh my God, I'm the producer. My job is to get Neil Young in this documentary. I'm going to do it. So off I went. I had a really lovely conversation with them. I said, did you like what you see? Oh, we love those guys, blah, blah, blah. Well, this is what we're doing, and it's, we're from New Zealand. It's only going to be seen in New Zealand, and we just love a couple of minutes with you, and you know, we just want to ask you about your love of the A minor chord, really. That's about it, honestly. And um, he's like, wow, well, if those guys want to come and talk to me, that will be all right. So my next job is to go and corral the crew and the Concords, which are two quite different things to do, And when I got to them, they were out the front of the gallery engaging with the fans who'd driven 30 hours. And I started to sort of make signals that we needed to stop what was happening because Neil Young was waiting in his car down the road. And it became evident that they were never gonna stop talking to their fans. And um, this is what was happening while I was trying to keep Neil Young from driving away. Sherry, who has been a fan for uh, many years and knows you guys and then there's a bunch of us ladies in one van, he's over there, his name is John and um, we just <laughs> talk about these guys online it's pretty dorky actually but, um, it's our fan base it's our key fan <laughs> yeah. actually getting very, very popular lately
2: I probably realistically a bit about team people like team dedicated people very dedicated
1: very dedicated very dedicated yeah, I'm a little obsessed, but this is my character. So then what happened? (laughs) That wasn't the end of it. Of course, Neil Young drove away. Not before Brett got to have a nice chat with him. But we missed our moment with Neil. But I think you'll all agree that that was the absolute highlight of the documentary. Like, that is it. And then in the ultimate act of fan service, in the first episode of the HBO series, (laughs) Mel, the superfan, shows Brett a photo of Jermaine's lip. And the fans, because by that time I was deep in the fan forums, went wild, as you can understand. So um, I would love to finish with some thoughts about authenticity and duty of care and cultural competence and, um, yeah, just taking care of your project from the outset because of the potential ways in which your fans might pile on or run away from you when they find out that maybe not everything is, is as it's set up to be. Um, and I've got an example to, to kind of lead into this, which is, has anyone heard of Ships of the Northern Fleet? Yes. <laughs> One person, two people. There's a reason for that. It's a fake TV steampunk sky pirate, fake completely dreamed up TV series Called Ships of the Northern Fleet that was sort of dreamed up during the pandemic uh, and created by lots and lots of people around the world, sparked by one video game writer's suggestion. And um, in one New York Times story recently about the whole phenomenon, um, they write about how it's sort of been an inclusive fandom by default. And what I found important about the story was, and, and about the phenomenon, is that it's described as a refuge for people who'd felt betrayed by the creators of other franchises they loved, like Harry Potter and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, And it was the fandom of this fake series was initially cultivated to be a queer-friendly space and comfortable for people of colour, all-inclusive, no one person dictating the way everything flows. Uh, And and one creator-slash-fans quote is, the least toxic fandom I've ever been in. So the... Final question for you, Sasha, really is, uh, the the question really is around, as creators, having our ships in order from the start so as not to run the risk of betraying our potential as yet unknown fans later on, and whether you wanted to comment on that.
2: (laughs) It's a pretty lofty goal. (laughs) I mean, I think it's easy to describe an entirely fake fandom as the most inclusive fandom that anyone has ever been in. I mean, two things about that, right? Like, there's there's no creator to let you down, so it's quite quite easy to say that that that's a good time. Yeah. Um, and also, I guarantee if you check in on the ships of the Northern Fleet fandom in a year from now, there'll have been some terrible rift, like because communities are made up of people, and um, that that will break down. You know, like there there will be fights, there will be discussions that turn heated, there will be spaces that are not safe for everyone to participate in, and that's the uncomfortable reality. We haven't yet worked out as human beings how to be in very large groups online and not have that disintegrate, and... um, There's a great quote that I used in a talk recently where someone said that, you know, people criticise cities for being cold and impersonal, but actually that's by design because we couldn't survive them otherwise. (laughs) You can't be around that many people in very close connection. Dunbar's number's 150 or whatever. So it's sort of, at some point, a group of people becomes too big and then there's trouble. So I think as a creator, you can't, full you can't foolproof it, right? Like it's um, I think what you can do is set out with an intention that you'd really love there to be a community around the thing that you've made that is a great space and um, that has people who are as passionate about the thing that you've made as you are. Um, and a lot of that is about making a product that um, you're proud of in the world, and that's about um, having a, a diverse team that's making it a team that is um, sharing with you the ways in which um, something might be interpreted or received in the wider community that you might not necessarily have thought of, Um, that stops you from creating characters that are terrible stereotypes or that are racist, that stops you from not hearing the voices of communities that ought to have been consulted and maybe haven't on the way through. And those are all things that mean that you're less likely to have your... Fandom say these guys are terrible.
1: That's just wise words <laughs> to end on, really. Um, that's the end of what we vaguely prepared. Would you like to ask us any questions here? You want to ask here? Yeah. I have one question, which is that
0: previously, or say
1: pre-internet, of a sort of widespread awareness of fans. potentially, I'm wrong, but um, a lot of filmmakers and TV makers made the things that they wanted to make, and they didn't really actually think about who they were making for at all. And and that's through the influence of funders and the influence of the internet, and all that has changed. Do you think for
2: the better? Has it? What has it done to the way that people create? I I think it's definitely meant that there are a, a much more diverse range of stories because I think what we had. It's it's definitely not great yet, Um, but we're definitely on a journey towards recognizing that our community um, has a hunger for a really wide range of stories and an increasing recognition that there's a commercial appetite for that. Um, I was listening to a, a podcast discussion today about In the Heights, the and, well, Miranda musical that's been adapted for the screen and sort of saying that part of the difficulty with it is that it's trying to be the only Latinx story that's told on screen this year. And so it sort of has to be everything to all people and what an impossible thing to try and... um, and it's turned out to not be enough things to... Sure, yeah. yeah. And and if there were 20 next films that came out this year, then it wouldn't be suffering under the weight of those expectations quite so much. So there's definitely a journey that we're on in terms of responding to audiences. Um, I don't think that we're at the point where it's like, oh, well, we'll only make something that's going to um, keep everybody happy. I think it's more about saying... Um, instead of just being a bunch of white guys who are making the films that they want to see in the world, we've now got a recognition that there's lots of different audiences and we can make projects for lots of different people. Um, and I, I, I think that's an improvement, but it's a, we've still got a way to go. The data definitely backs up that
1: um, films... That's, there's, so I know that Franklin Leighdon from Blacklist has been sharing a piece of data around that's come out in the last year around... Uh, film content that is made by black creators and features black faces makes at a a, a percentage more box office than general content, but is funded far, far underneath what the other content is funded. So the more data we have, the more we can back that up. But I would also say that being being in the middle of the Tribeca Film Festival right now, there are still… Plenty of people making movies for themselves. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen about 10 movies in the last week and five of them were, yeah, pretty, yeah. Anyway, um, let's, oh, here's Eloise.
0: Uh, Thank you so, so much for such an amazing, rip-roaring, deep, intense discussion about all things to do with fandoms and audience and how creators can engage with them and how they do. Um, I've got to thank... Our lovely sponsors, thank you to the New Zealand Film Commission, Foundation North and White Studios who um, make these talks possible. Um, Our funders require us to report back on who comes along and what they thought of our talks so if you could please, please, please fill out our surveys Um, outside there really quick Um, and that is the way we can make these things keep happening so thank you so much. See you out there. (laughs) The talk series is proudly supported by the New Zealand Film Commission, Foundation North, Images and Sound, and White Studios. Music for the podcast was provided by Poddington Bear, and voiceover is Lucy Wigmore.